God, we ask now that you would quiet our hearts as we turn to your word. Uh, Your words are literally the words of life. And we come to them this morning knowing that we do not have any life in and of ourselves. The only life that we have is on borrow from you, the author of life. And so we ask, God, that you would speak into us this morning. We need to hear from you. We need to know you more. We need to know you better because you are like our power pack. You are where we get our, our energy for life, not in like a weird spiritual sense, but in, in a biblical godly sense. And so we ask that you would allow us to plug into you in this moment, that you would speak to us, that you would speak to our hearts, that this would not just be an academic exercise in gaining more head knowledge about God, but that this would be an experiential exercise in encountering the living God. This is not about a, a performance, God, or a, or a well-thought-through presentation of a passage of Scripture. This is simply to witness to the truth that you are life and we are lost without you. So we ask that you would speak to us now. Speak through me, I ask. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. You can be seated. I'm not going to walk the aisles. I just forgot my water. wanted to grab that. Uh, we're continuing our series in Mark called Let's Go. And so uh, we're just back in Mark chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 13, and we're going to read through verse 35. Mark 13. Mark 3, 13 through verse 35. I'll give you about five seconds to meet me there. Mark 3, 13. This is what it says. It says, And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. How would it be to be called by Jesus, the sons of thunder? I got a couple sons of thunder. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Cananean and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house." Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they had said he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came and standing outside they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. 
Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Doug was born in New York City. He spent uh, his childhood in Connecticut and the greater Boston area. He was a very gifted student, and he went to Dartmouth College and earned a degree in economics. After Dartmouth, he went on to Harvard, where he earned an MBA. And after Harvard, he got a job at one of the largest and most prestigious investment firms in the world called PIMCO, Pacific Investment Management Company, and that job brought him out here to Southern California. And over the next few decades, he worked his way up through the ranks at PIMCO until he was eventually named COO, Chief Operating Officer. And then a few years after that, he was named CEO, Chief Executive Officer. Doug and his wife had five children. And when his oldest, a daughter, was getting ready to finish high school and looking at college, she wanted to go to Georgetown. Or they wanted her to go to Georgetown, or both. They wanted, she, she wanted to get into Georgetown. About that time, Doug was introduced to a man who also lived in Southern California named William Singer. He went by the name of Rick. And Doug was told that Rick could help him because he was a college admittance consultant. He could help his daughter potentially get into Georgetown. And when, he met, when Doug met with Rick, Rick told him, here's what I think we should do. I think we should have your daughter apply as a tennis player, as a tennis recruit, to Georgetown. The problem was, Doug's daughter didn't play tennis. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> but they went ahead with the plan anyway. So they filled out an application. They submitted even a picture of Doug's daughter playing tennis. And after a sizable donation to one of Rick Singer's nonprofits, Doug's daughter was admitted to Georgetown University. They did it for another daughter who got into USC as a soccer recruit. She didn't play soccer. They did it for a son who got into USC as a football recruit, though the highest level of football he had ever played was his freshman football. In my manuscript, I have in brackets, insert USC football joke here. So you played freshman football? We'll take you. <laughs> as many of us know, in 2019, this whole scheme came crashing down when the federal government announced the loudest, loudest, was well, loud, the largest prosecution of its kind ever, and dozens of individuals and families were uh, accused and then convicted of cheating, lying, and stealing their way into elite universities all over this country. Doug Hodge, Douglas Hodge, former CEO of PIMCO, it cost him a lot more to send his children to some nice, very elite schools than he expected. It was more than just the tuition room and board and the donations that he made to Rick Singer's nonprofit organizations. It cost him nine months in prison, 29 days of which were in solitary confinement because of COVID protocols, $750,000, 500 hours of community service, not to mention the loss of his reputation, integrity, and the public shame and humiliation that he had to go through. When Doug Hodge met Rick Singer, he was faced with a decision. Doug had gone to some of the finest business schools in our country, frankly, some of the finest business schools in our world. So whether he knew consciously he was doing this or whether it just happened subconsciously, 
Doug Hodge would have been very familiar with a concept that we call a cost-benefit analysis. Now, I see some of your eyes glazing over as I say that. You're like, I don't do spreadsheets. I don't do numbers. Pastor, don't be bringing this business stuff into church. A cost-benefit analysis is very simple to understand. You don't have to go to business school to understand it. Here's what it is. When you are faced with a decision, it is simply trying to ascertain what will the costs of this decision be, weighed against what are the perceived benefits of making this decision, and then making your decision based on how you can perceive those two sides of the equation to come out. If we could ask Doug Hodge today, was it worth it to cheat to send your kids to these elite universities, I think we know what his answer would be. He wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal last year titled, I Wish I Had Never Met Rick Singer. The cost, what he thought up front would just be not that big of a deal for someone of his wealth. The, the, the donations to the nonprofit and the tuition and room and board didn't seem like that big of a deal. In hindsight, the cost was much greater than he could have ever anticipated. The college admission scandal of 2019 provides an amazing picture into the human heart, amazing window into the human heart. It does so for many ways, and pastors and sociologists for decades to come will be using it as illustrations and case studies. But the thing I want to point out today is this. That college admission scandal speaks to the longing of every human heart. We all long to be part of something special. We all long to feel like we are part of something bigger than ourselves. And in the case of the college admission sc scandal, it was for these kids and these families, they wanted to go to an elite school and feel like they were, some of, they were part of something special. But we all have that feeling inside of us. We all have a longing to feel like we are part of something special, like we are part of something bigger than ourselves. It's why country clubs are so successful. It's why swim and racket clubs are so successful. It's why alumni associations and rotary clubs, it's why Peloton and SoulCycle and CrossFit are so successful because they scratch the itch inside each of our souls to feel like we are part of something bigger than ourselves. The problem is none of those things can actually fulfill what the longing in our heart is. They just begin to scratch the surface. We're continuing today, obviously, in our series in Mark called Let's Go. And as we get to this section of Mark, uh, Mark has given us a picture through the first two and a half chapters of his gospel of who Jesus is, what he was doing, and what he was claiming. And the verses that we are looking at today are like Mark's, I want to give you a heads up on something about what it means to follow Jesus. So Mark has told us that, that Jesus has called some disciples to himself in, the, in verse 13, which we're about to dig into in just a minute or two. He tells us that Jesus has extended that call to more disciples beyond just the five that he already has named out by name. And you can almost hear Mark saying to the Gentiles in Rome that he is writing this letter to, this gospel to, he's saying, hey, look, Jesus may call you to be his disciple too, but you need to know if you receive that call. There are some costs and there are some benefits to becoming a disciple of Jesus. In these verses that we are looking at today, Mark is giving us, he's helping us by giving us his cost-benefit analysis for what it means to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. And here's the first thing we learn. The first thing we learn in this text is that Jesus calls us to something special. Jesus calls us to something very special. 
If we turn back to the text, if we look at verse 13, this is what it says. It says, and he went up on the mountain, that's Jesus, and he called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. We see in just that verse two aspects of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. The first is this, Jesus calls disciples. This is critical for us to get. This is not a decision that we make. It is a call that we receive from Jesus Christ. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his wonderful book, The Cost of Discipleship, says this. He says, discipleship is not an offer that man makes to Christ. We don't come to Jesus and say, I would like to be your disciple. Jesus calls us to be his disciples. He initiates the relationship. And the second thing we see in verse 13 is this. What? They came to him. We have a choice to make. We have a decision to make. When we receive that call from Jesus, are we going to respond? Are we going to come to him? So, so discipleship is a call of Jesus and a response. And we're going to see two more aspects in verse 14. It says, he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. So what is the essence of following Jesus? What is the essence of discipleship? It is twofold. It is one, to be with Jesus. The call of discipleship is simply to be with Jesus so that what? So that he can send us out to do what? To preach and have the authority to cast out demons. Now, now check this. Flipping back to Mark 1, verse 38, verses 38 and 39, this is what Jesus said early on. He says, and he says to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. So the call of discipleship is to be with Jesus and then to do what? To carry on the mission that he has started in the world. He says in chapter one, I came to do two things. I came to preach and cast out demons. And when he calls the disciples to himself here in chapter 3, he calls them to be with him and then he sends them out to do what? To preach and cast out demons. To carry on his mission in the world. Here it is. The call of discipleship, the call of Jesus is to know Jesus and to make him known. The essence of following Jesus is to know him and to make him known known. And I know for a lot of us who've been around church for a while, it's like, yeah, Gary, I know, I got that. We, I know that it's to be with Jesus and to go out on mission for him. But can we just pause for a second and realize how amazing that is? It gets lost on us. It, we, we lose the wonder of what that means when we've been around church for a while. And we sometimes just need to be reminded of the things we already know. Jesus is calling us to himself so that we might continue his mission in the world. You want to talk about being called to something special? That is, that, there, there is nothing better. And what we know from scripture, and get this, what we know from, it doesn't, it's not in these, these verses, but we know from the context of scripture, is who Jesus called to himself. He did not call the rich. He did not call the successful. He did not call the influential or the powerful or the political leaders. He did not call the USC grads and the Georgetown grads. He called the average. He called the regular. He called the common. And that's good news because like 80% of us are average. He called the poor. He called the destitute. He called the outcast. He called the rejects. He called the sinners. Jesus calls those who the world does not want to be with him and to carry on his mission in the world. Jesus calls us to something incredibly special. 
When I was growing up, uh, I used to love, well, I didn't love to watch it, but I, I, I would watch when I was home sick from school or when I was at my grandparents' house and just binging on TV and they didn't have cable. My favorite show to watch was The Price is Right. <laughs> Come on. Somebody knows. And the best part, the best part of The Price is Right was what? It was when someone had gone through whatever challenge they went through and they weren't going to go on to the showcase showdown, which we were all sad about that. Uh, and there was an empty spot at the podium, four people down front. There was an empty spot. And you would come back from commercial and the place is going nuts. Everyone. Why? Because they know everyone's in the running to get that spot down front. And then Rod Roddy, I had to look that up. I didn't know that name uh, off the top of my head. The greatest game show PA announcer in the history of game shows. He would come over the loudspeaker and what would he say? Crowd's going wild and he would go, Gary Anderson, come on down. You're the next contestant on The Price is Right. And everyone goes nuts and Gary hugs his friends and he comes running down, hands up in the air. And that is the call that Jesus is making for you and for I. Jesus is saying, come on down. He is saying, I have something incredibly special for you. I'm up on the mountain. Come to me. I want you to be with me so that I can send you out. And here's the thing. We don't have to lie on our application. We don't have to submit a picture that's been photoshopped of us on a missions trip in Mexico or at a soup kitchen feeding the poor. All we have to do when we hear the call of Jesus in our life is respond. All we have to do is go be with him. And after we have spent time with him, after we have become his disciples, he will give us a mission. He will send us out into the world to do the very thing that he came to do. God, Jesus, both of them, they're the same, calls us to something very special. So Jesus calls us something special, but here's the next thing we need to know. It's the next thing Mark shows us in this text. There is a cost. The call of Jesus comes with a cost. It's why we get in verses 20 and 21 what Mark tells us. Now, in my Bible, they kind of, the ESV, they start a new section in the middle of that. Really, 20 and 21, I think, should be down with the rest of the verses talking about the scribes. Because here it is. Mark is saying to those, the, the people who are reading his gospel, he's saying, Jesus calls people to be with himself and he gives them a mission. And he's like, you may hear that call of Jesus. And if you do, you're going to have a decision to make. You're going to have to perform a cost-benefit analysis as to whether you are going to respond to that call. And let me just tell you up front, there are some costs. He doesn't give, them, give us all of them, but he gives us a big one, and here's what it is. People are going to think that you are crazy. If you are a committed follower of Jesus Christ, if you are a committed disciple of Jesus Christ, people will think that you are literally out of your mind. Why? Because Jesus' own family thought that about him. Verse 21, and when his family heard it, heard what? Presumably everything Mark has given us up to this point in his gospel. They went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. That word seize in Greek is the same word that's translated elsewhere, arrest. They were not going to kind of have, a, have a, a talk with him. They were going to have an intervention to arrest him. If there was an institution they could put him in, that's what they were heading for. Jesus' own family, those closest to him, when they saw what he was doing and what he was saying, thought he was out of his mind. 
not only his family, the religious leaders, the, the scribes, the smart guys of the day, especially when it came to, the th- came to the things of God, they come down from Jerusalem to see what's going on, and this is what they say. Verse 23, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. So his family says he's crazy. The religious leaders say what? He's possessed. Now, there's a lot of argument about what, what, what the use of the name Beelzebul is here. A lot of lot, the scholars do not agree on what that is. But what they all agree on is this. It's referring to Satan. And so here come the religious leaders of the day. Jesus' family is saying, you're crazy, dude. The religious leaders of the day are saying, you are possessed by Satan. And Jesus responds, we don't have time to go through all of them, in verses 24 through 27 with a series of parables basically saying this. You guys who are supposed to be so learned make no logical sense. If the things I am doing are from the power of Satan, if I am casting out demons in the power of Satan, that means Satan's kingdom is already defeated because it is destroying itself. The thing you are saying doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And Mark is saying, if, if you decide to answer the call of Jesus to discipleship, you need to know there are some costs. And again, there are more than the ones that we are talking about. Mark is primarily here focusing on the social cost. He is saying, people are going to think you're out of your mind, and some people are going to think you're working for the wrong team. You need to count the cost before you answer the call of Jesus to follow him. Uh, my family and I, thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed uh, watching the Olympics over these past number of weeks. And apparently, according to the ratings, we were like some of the only people who did. Uh, We love, like everyone else does, and like the networks know, and it's why they do so many of them, we love the backstories on how people got to the Olympics. Here are people at the absolute pinnacle of their athletic performance and achievement. And what we need to recognize is that at some point, every one of those athletes that competes in the Olympics, they received a call. They received a call. It might have been from a parent. It might have been from a teacher. It might have been internal from themselves. But they felt a call to become the best they could possibly be in whatever athletic event it was that they were gifted in. And that call came with a cost, particularly a tremendous social cost. Because most of them felt that call when they were like five. And so when all their friends were out riding bikes and playing video games and going to the pool, they were at practice. And in college, when all their buddies and, and, and sorority sisters and roommates were going out to party, and I'm not condoning that, when they were going out to party, they were going to bed early because they had a training session at 5 a.m. the next morning. When they were out to eat and everyone was smashing wings and pizza and cake and ice cream, they were eating broccoli and grilled chicken. Why? Because they had a call on their lives that was different than those who were around them. And for most of those who were around them, we look at their lives and we say what? You're crazy. You're out of your mind. Like, why are you doing this? And they're like, I have a call that you don't understand. And the same is true for the disciple of Jesus Christ. We have a call on our lives. We have a call to something special, something bigger than ourselves. And those around us are going to think that we are crazy 
because of the way we act when we are following Jesus Christ. Mark is saying just expect it. If they thought it of the Savior, they are certainly going to think it of his followers. And we live in a place here, Silicon Valley, where there is a real cost to being outed as a follower of Jesus Christ. Now look, I know we have people in our congregation. We prayed for Afghanistan this morning. We have people in our congregation who come from cultures and countries where if you decide to become a follower of Jesus Christ, you are taking, your, your life is at risk. I'm not saying our lives are at risk necessarily here in Silicon Valley, but there is a lot of at, at risk if people know us as followers of Jesus Christ. You're gonna lose friends, you're gonna lose opportunities, you're gonna lose opportunities for promotion. You may lose a job because you are known as a follower of Jesus Christ. There is a cost, and so, so what do we do? Let's keep it real. So what do we do? We just get real quiet about it. We just get quiet about the fact that we are disciples of Jesus Christ, and we live lives that are good and moral and you know, kind of look nice from the outside, but for an outsider looking in, they don't look any different than the lives of our neighbors and our coworkers and the people that we go to the club with. Maybe we don't swear as much. Maybe we don't drink as much. Maybe we do. Maybe we show up to church two and a half times a month. But on the outside, on the surface, there is nothing really that marks us out as being crazy. But if that is how we are living, we have missed the essence of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Jesus does not call us to himself so that we can hide it. You cannot go out on mission for him into the world, doing the things that he does, if you are not willing to expose yourself, as to expose the fact that you are a disciple of Jesus Christ to those who are gonna ridicule you for it, call you a weirdo for it, call you crazy for it, and if they don't do it to your face, they are certainly gonna do it behind your back. My hope and dream for us at Abundant Life is that we will be a community of people who the outside world says they are wackos. And the demons are terrified of because we have counted the cost of going all in with Jesus Christ and we have made the decision and all over the Bay Area, we are kicking in the gates of hell, doing battle with Satan and his demons because Jesus has sent us to do it. Jesus calls us to something special, but there is a cost. Now, we gotta take just a three-minute uh, excursus. We gotta take a three-minute detour from the mainstream of the message right now and cover two verses which have given millions of followers of Jesus Christ an unbelievable amount of fear and anxiety over the last thousands of years. And it, we gotta talk just about, for a minute about this idea of what it means to blaspheme the Holy Spirit and be guilty of an eternal sin. I know that's, that's scary. Let's talk about it. I think I can clear it up for us. I hope I can. Uh, Jesus says in verses 28 and 29, he says, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Now what is that all about? That seems to just run contrary to all the rest of this whole book of the Bible, like where does that fit in and what is going on? A couple of things we need to recognize up front before we even talk about what it means to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. The first is this. Nowhere in all of Scripture, anywhere, is there any evidence of God ever not granting forgiveness to someone who has asked for it. 
No precedent anywhere in all of Scripture that God will not forgive someone who asks for forgiveness. The other thing we need to recognize is in the verse that I just read, Jesus says, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man. So which is it? Is it all sins or is there one that can't be forgiven? Here's what it is. We need to recognize when we come to God's word that it is not, I've said this before, it is not a collection of memory verses randomly pushed together. The books of the Bible are inspired by God himself and they are amazing works of literature and theology. We have to look at the context when we find something that we're confused about. And when we look at the context of this statement about blaspheming the Holy Spirit, just look a little bit before it, look a little bit after it, what do we see? It is in the context of Jesus, or Mark, talking about the scribes coming to Jesus and saying what? He's possessed by a demon. Here are the scribes. They have come to Jesus. They have seen or heard about the things that he is doing. They have seen the evidence of God's good work in his life, and they are saying what? It's evil. They are looking at the works of God's Holy Spirit, and they are attributing it to Satan. They are calling good evil. They are calling God Satan. So to blaspheme the Holy Spirit is to look at the good works of God and say that is the work of Satan. That is the work of the devil. That is evil. It is good, and to call it evil. And so, so here's the deal. Why is it an unforgivable sin? Because someone who believes that has not asked for forgiveness. If you believe that God, if you look at what God is doing, if you look at his works, if you look at his son and you say, that is, that is evil. You are not in a place where you are ready to repent and say, I need you, God. I can't save myself. If you come to that place, you will be forgiven. So the reason it is an unforgivable sin is because you can't ask forgiveness if you are in that state of mind, if you believe that. Scripture is clear. In the end, no one is going to be grandfathered into salvation because of their parents or their grandparents or because they showed up to church. You are going to be granted salvation because you repented of your sin and asked God for forgiveness. And if you do that, you are guaranteed salvation. So if you are worried about whether you have blasphemed the Holy Spirit, that is enough evidence in and of itself that you have not done it. The fact that you are worried about it shows that you are not guilty of it. Clear? Good. All right. Jesus calls us to something special. There is a cost, but we're running a cost-benefit analysis this morning. So what? There is also a benefit. And that's what Mark closes out this section with. Uh, Jesus is teaching, or he's in a house. His disciples are around him. This is wider than the 12 apostles. There's a big crowd of people there. His mother and his brothers come. They're standing outside. Someone's like, Jesus, your family's looking for you. And he's like, they're here to put me in an institution. I think I'm going to stay inside. <laughs> and, and he says in verse 33, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, this ragtag collection of misfits and sinners and underachievers. He says, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and my mother. You see what he's saying? He's saying, if you choose to answer the call of discipleship, if you choose to answer the call to follow Jesus, you may actually lose your biological family. But you will gain a spiritual family. Yeah, you can clap for that. And that benefit goes a long way to, to outweighing the cost 
that comes with discipleship. Jesus is saying you were made for community. You were made for a family. And when you answer my call, you become a part of my family. You gain spiritual brothers and sisters. You gain God as your father. You are adopted sons and daughters of the Most High. That's a huge benefit. Last Sunday after service, uh, myself and two of our elders went to visit one of our members who was in the hospital. And because of COVID, uh, only two of us could go up at a time. So, uh, so we got to the hospital, two of us went up, one of, the, one of the other elders I was with stayed down, and our plan was we'd stay up for a few minutes and then we'd switch, someone would come down, and, an, and another person would go up. So uh, we're up there in the room visiting with this person for maybe all of five or eight minutes. And there's a knock on the door, and another member of our church, unbeknownst to us, comes into the room. And we're like, oh, we got three of us. Someone has to leave. So one of the elders leaves and goes down. And so now it's me and, and another member of our church. And we stay for a little bit. And then I go to, to switch so that someone else can come up. And I didn't even know it. But on my way down, another member of our church, who I didn't know was going to be there, was already on their way up. And so we got two more up there. There's two downstairs. And I go down. And when I come outside, there's actually six because four more people from our congregation who we didn't know were coming, we didn't plan it, were there to visit this person in the hospital. Now, I've lost count. I think it was nine or ten. That's nine or ten people. It's like the fellowship time we have outside after service. We just extended to the parking lot of Kaiser Redwood City. It was an incredible picture of God's family. And that is what you get when you answer God's call to follow, when you answer Jesus' call to discipleship, you gain a new family. This is what we were made for. This place, these people, these crazy weirdos you're looking at all around you right now, for many of us, this family is more impactful to us than our biological family. You were made for this. I was made for this. We were made for this. And if the extent of your engagement in this church or whatever church it is that you call your home is to come once a week or once every other week and, and consume a few worship songs and a, and a moderately entertaining message and then go, you're missing it. Because that is not what God made this place to be. This is a place where you are to be known and to know. This is a place where you are to be loved and to love. This is a place where you are to weep with those who are weeping, to rejoice with those who are rejoicing. This is a place where you are to have people weep with you when you are the one weeping and rejoice with you when you are the one rejoicing. This is a place where you are to, to find love and support and help in your time of need and it is a place where you are to give love and help and support in your time of need. And if it's just a, a show you come to once on Sunday mornings, you are missing it because you cannot get anywhere else what you get in the family of God. The country club cannot give you what you get here. Your place of work cannot give you what you get here. Your rotary club can't do it. Peloton can't do it. As much as Allie Love inspires you, she can't do it. CrossFit can't do it. You cannot find what God designed you to be a part of except here in his family. And that is an enormous benefit to outweigh the cost of what you might have to give up should you answer the call to discipleship.
God calls us to something incredibly special. It is the longing of our heart is fulfilled to be a part of something bigger than ourselves when we become a member of his family. There is a cost, but there is a benefit. And what I love about Jesus, we're wrapping up right now, what I love about Jesus is that he does not ask us to do anything that he hasn't done himself. Jesus had his own cost-benefit analysis to run through. Jesus had his own call from a mountain. It was a hill, and it was a hill called Calvary. And the call was for him to come and lay down his life, to suffer and die, to feel the full wrath of God poured out on him so that you and I might be adopted as sons and daughters of God. And in the garden the night before he was to go to the cross, he did his own cost-benefit analysis. He looked at the suffering. He looked at, at the potential, the, 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 the assurance that he would be separated from God the Father. He looked at the fact that he was going to take all the sin of the world onto himself. And then he looked at the fact that by doing so, he could redeem those who were held captive by Satan and transform them into sons and daughters of God. And when he asked himself, is it worth it? The answer was a resounding yes. And praise God that it was. We each have to ask ourselves the same question. Is it worth it? There is a cost to following Jesus Christ with your life. People will think you are crazy and a bunch of other stuff. But there is a benefit as well. You, you become part of God's family. And, and not only do you find joy, fulfillment, peace in this life, but eternal life in the life to come. I can't answer for you what the right decision is for you, but I can tell you that as for me, 1,000 times over, the benefits of following Jesus with my life have made the costs pale in comparison. There was a famous missionary uh, back in the middle of the 1900s. His name was Jim Elliott. He died. He was killed by the people in Central America that he was uh, bringing the message of Jesus Christ to. He famously wrote in his journal, which was published after his death, this line. He said, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. The benefits outweigh the cost. Jesus is calling. Come on down. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have placed inside of us, inside of each of us, a longing for something that we cannot find within ourselves, a longing for something bigger than us, a longing to be a part of something that is outside of us. And we also thank you, God, that nothing can fulfill that longing except you. And so I pray this morning, God, if there is someone here in the sanctuary today, if there is someone watching on the live stream today, and they have been sensing that you are calling them, and they are not sure how to respond, I pray that you will move in their heart in such a way that today is the day that they can say, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. 
going to just be quiet for a moment. I'll give you an opportunity here in the church and at home. If there's business you need to do with God this morning, to do it now. It may be that this is the, the moment to decide to follow him. It may be that this is the moment to recommit to following him. That this is the moment to say, God, help me, help me be a fool for you. Help me care more about what the creator of the universe thinks of me than what my neighbors or coworkers think of me. God, it is a privilege to know you and it is a privilege to walk with you. And we ask that you would allow us to be a people who are radically on mission for you, to know you and to make you known. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. You can clap when you stand. You don't have to, but you can if you want. Again, just a reminder, after service, if you could, uh, those of you who are here, in person, if you could just exit the sanctuary uh, as quickly as possible. If you are new here in the last few months, uh, I would love to meet you. Uh, there should be a tent or a banner out there, and I'll be out there as soon as I can to say hello. Uh, and if you have felt like God is calling you to make a decision this morning, please find me, please find one of our elders. We would love to talk to you about that, pray with you about that. Receive the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Until we meet again or until our Savior comes and then forever. Amen. You're loved and you are prayed for and you are sent.